For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. The quote wildlife group, Friends of Animals, is suing Colorado Parks and Wildlife over the recent decision to require a valid hunting or fishing license for all recreators over the age of 18 on state land leased by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. CPW is the state agency that manages wildlife, just to be clear. CPW also uses funding from license sales to lease Colorado state land. State land, which is private land held by the state for profit, is not de facto public. The revenues from state lands are typically for school funding. They can be used for other sources as well. But in this case, instead of, you know, there being like a gravel pit or a mine or, uh, you know, some sort of private lease situation that precludes public access, CPW leases this ground to provide public access with the primary beneficiary of that access being license holders. An increase in non-license holding recreators on these CPW managed state lands has subsequently increased the cost to maintain the properties and reduced the value of those properties to the hunting and fishing public. Furthermore, some of the non-hunting or angling activities were factors in displacing wildlife and hurting habitat, which is, of course, contrary to the program itself. In order to keep public access for all, and not just closing it to people who hunt and fish, Colorado Parks and Wildlife decided to implement the requirement that everyone who chooses to recreate on these lands needs to have a hunting or fishing license. Now, as some people do not know, a hunting or fishing license does not necessitate the holder of that license to hunt or fish. In fact, 
I would wager there are more than a few people listening to this show that held either license, or possibly both, and never made it out in the field or onto the water uh, last year a single day. It just happens sometimes. What else happens is those license dollars, whether you hunted or fished or did not, went to wildlife, habitat, restoration, landowner conflict mitigation, population studies, and in this particular case, access. What the so-called wildlife group, Friends of Animals, is doing by suing CPW is taking necessary funds away from wildlife. Doesn't sound like any friend of mine. Friends of Wildlife has many points of contention in their lawsuit, including members oppose associating with or conveying messages in support of consumptive wildlife use, such as hunting and fishing. FOA, that's Friends of Wildlife, claims the new rule imposes a person to express the message that they approve hunting and fishing in order to use the land and that CPW doesn't have the authority to enact the new requirement. Friends of Wildlife also claims the regulation violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment and violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments by restricting access. As we covered, this is private land, they're the leaseholder, the restricting access thing doesn't fly. But we'll take it from the top. Consumptive wildlife use. Yes, hunting and fishing is consumptive. Typically, when a fish or an animal are killed and in hand. However, the consumption of wildlife is not limited to hunting and fishing, is it? How many bird watchers have cringed as that sparrow thumps under the grill as you're doing 75 down I-80? How many mountain bikers have felt less than comfortable as they crunch through a hatch of Mormon crickets, or as happens in the spring, little fuzzy baby chipmunks on that single track? To really expand your brain, how many catch-and-release fly fishermen have snagged a bat fishing the evening hatch? Or for you gun or boat toting maniacs out there on yet another unsuccessful, non-consumptive hunt, have bumped elk on your way back to the truck, over a ridge, only to hear, uh, you know, gunshots. That scenario could be swapped out for hikers or horse riders or anyone else who uh, thumps the trail to the non-consumptive beat. Don't even get me started on backcountry skiers or people who are just out walking your dogs or letting your goddarn cat out for the night. Point is, if you interact with nature or go about the business of being a human in just about any way, even without the intent to kill and consume, you are consumptive. Is your consumption as easily computed as mine? A consumption tied to notched tags and hunter harvest or creel surveys? No, of course not. But the other part of my consumption that is easily trackable is the dollars that go to habitat. A duck stamp, a license, a tag, all those purchases, those dollars support wildlife the whole year round, not just during hunting or fishing season. For those who say, yeah, but you're just doing that so you can kill and eat an animal. Uh, you know, sure. If that's the argument you want to make, let's assume so. Well, in order to have, let's say, a wild pheasant to kill and consume, you need clean, pesticide-free water, balanced habitat that feeds, insulates, and promotes bug growth, which in turn promotes small mammal growth and songbird growth and all sorts of other worthless creatures that we aren't allowed to consume. And who enjoys that stuff? Obviously, not hunters. All you non-hunting freeloaders do, right? At least that's how the argument can be spun, and easily so. 
because hunters and anglers are terrible at telling the truth. Nobody talks about the hours in a day, the days in a month, the months in a year, and the years of, quote, unsuccessful hunting and fishing we hunters and fishers do. We only show, talk about, and celebrate the big brown trout, the buck, or brace of birds. Our industry is the exact same way. You can't sell a backpack or a fly rod without a big fish on the end of the line or a gnarly set of antlers filling the pack, can you? So, I take responsibility for friends of animals thinking that every licensed holding angler is always interacting with fish, or every licensed hunter is stepping out from the truck and killing. We folks that partake know that this isn't the case, but they do not. CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, could have seen this one coming and come up with another option. An access fee called, you know, like Nature Impositioners Pass or uh, Nature Disruptors Annual Fee. Something like that. But who wants to rewrite a website if the cash is going to the same place as the hunting and fishing licenses anyway? I don't know, man. That sounds like a lot of work. This week, we've got Anwar, Pebble Mine, Moose, Obituaries, and Man's First Fire. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is sponsored, as you should all know by now, by Steel Power Equipment makers of the world's finest chainsaws, and so much more. So there you have it. You want to support this show? Buy steel power equipment, or some of their non-power equipment, which I'll get into later. I have been slowly adding a few walleye collars to the freezer. I have found the best tool to decollar a fish, walleye in this case, is in fact my steel pruning shears. I just keep them in the dish rack next to the sink, and no more dulling fillet knives against the hardest part of the fish. Genius, you're thinking. But no, it's just steel indoor-outdoor pruning de-fish coloring shears. Wow! Pick yours up today. The other steel product I picked up just recently is a dog dish. And Snort, the growing yellow monster, is quite fond of it. I exchanged my MSA 220C electric chainsaw for the dog dish, in a way. As you recall, we auctioned off a bunch of great, unique stuff in order to close the funding gap on a soon-to-be piece of public land in Maine. One of those things was the chainsaw, and as luck would have it, some of our buddies from Steel showed up and took care of the shipping of the saw to the auction winner, and upon handing the saw over, I was given a Steel dog dish, which I thought was pretty cool. Anyway, Elaine in Colorado Springs, I know you didn't want my stinky old public landowner t-shirt, But thank you for buying it, as well as my saw and supporting public lands and, you know, general freedom. All right, that's it for my week. We've got a lot to cover. A couple of good ones came out of the Ask Cal, that's A-S-K-C-A-L, at TheMeatEater.com mailbag. First, from Isle Royale, Michigan, courtesy of Dallas. If you all recall Isle Royale, that far-flung island, not quite in Canada, so it's in Michigan, Isle Royale has been home to caribou, lynx, and most recently moose and wolves, although not continuously. Uh, Researchers working on the ever-ongoing moose-wolf population dynamic study went out to find a presumed dead radio-collared bull moose. Upon finding the carcass, they noted that the carcass had not been scavenged by the wolf populations of Isle Royale, and that the bull, although old, did not have the typical signs of age progression that a bull dying of old age would have. The bull was determined to die of malnutrition, but they could not find out why. 
until they examined the bull's upper palate. You know that thing you make this sound with? Anyway, the bull had a stick lodged between its upper molars and tight to its upper palate, which they believe inhibited his ability to eat just enough to cause death by malnutrition. If you have ever seen a bull moose in action, particularly in the rut, these are incredibly powerful animals that can destroy basically anything around them. Sizable trees. I've watched bulls shear off alder that were six inches around without much effort. I guess what I'm saying is, you know how, like, sometimes when you're eating a tortilla chip and uh, you get, like, a shard of a tortilla chip that gets stuck up in your upper palate? You know, that place? That's kind of how this bull died. We always have this picture of nature and animals and how they're just this indomitable force and they're always like light on their feet and they die, of course, in these incredible ways, fighting to the death. This old bull, for instance, should have died backed up against a cliff wall, swaying his impressive antlers as six wolves attempted to advance on the old bull, but he was holding them off until he just couldn't hold them off anymore. But no, it was a corn chip, folks. A corn chip got him. Over to Tennessee, but sticking with big deer, elk specifically. Jesse writes in with, What is going on with this slight regulation change in Tennessee? The TWRA, the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, is now allowing incidental take of elk in Tennessee outside the elk restoration zone. I'm not sure where I stand on this issue. As a landowner, self-proclaimed wildlife manager, and hunter, I would never shoot an elk in Tennessee without a legal elk tag. Our property is very near the elk zone, and I have seen elk tracks through our property. Questions are numerous. Does this new change encourage illegal elk hunting in nearby counties? Is it effectively legalizing opportunists that might start to bait these elk in neighboring counties? Who defines incidental take? I've never seen a deer in East Tennessee that remotely came close to the size of an elk. In our densely wooded environment, shots beyond 150 yards are rarer than 200-inch Pope and Young piebalds. Is the TWRA assuming that Tennessee hunters are so dumb we don't know our elk from our deer? A lot of good questions in one email, Jesse. Uh, I reached out to Joe Benedict, Chief of Wildlife and Forestry Division of TWRA. Chief Benedict had this to say, When we reintroduced elk in Tennessee, we committed to trying to keep them contained in the elk restoration zone. This commission action will allow elk that wander out of the zone or into Tennessee from another state to be harvested, quote, incidentally, while deer hunting. No tag required, just need to be a hunter with appropriate deer hunting licenses and report to Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency. Uh, He goes on to say that there won't be enough elk to open a specific season, and there won't be enough elk for folks to intentionally target them. So the incidental take does seem to address a possible disease transmission scare if they are taking into account elk coming in from out of state, which they are. And it seems as if Tennessee Wildlife Research Agency is trying to keep their end of the bargain in which elk were reintroduced to Tennessee in the first place. Uh, Important to remember that not every motorist or farmer is pro-elk. As for the bad apples that could take advantage of this situation by finding ways to ensure incidental take of elk, 
yeah, that seems like a possibility for sure. Although the elk regulations do state that a successful hunter needs to provide coordinates for the kill site along with immediately reporting the kill itself to Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, which could be enough of a deterrent for some. You know, one other note here is states like Montana, Idaho, just about every other place with established elk populations, there are many millions of dollars in assistance paid out to farmers and ranchers that have uh, lots of wildlife competing for resources that they make a living on. And it appears that Tennessee is trying to get out ahead of it by using this incidental take situation. Still seems a little lame. They worked so hard to put elk back in Tennessee. I know the last time that I was in Tennessee, TWRA raised a ton of money by raffling off a bull elk tag. Really, really cool deal. You would think there would be another way to utilize some of these elk that wander out of the elk zone. But for you folks in those shoulder counties, boy, what a bonus. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Moving on to the Natural Resources Desk. The Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is now open for business. Specifically, Section 1002, the 1.5 million acre coastal plain located next to the Beaufort Sea. The Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR, was put together in three separate editions starting in the 1980s. 
the 1002 area was set aside with a provision that the area could be available for oil and gas exploration and development through congressional approval. That provision can be found in Section 1003 of ANILCA, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. Now, every single inch of the roughly 19.2 million acres of Anwar, or 30-plus thousand square miles, is both culturally significant and ecologically significant. This area is the breeding grounds for hundreds of thousands of migratory birds and caribou and a bunch of other amazing stuff. The 1.5 million acre coastal plain zone is no different. Some argue the coastal plain area is actually more ecologically important and more culturally significant, and the effects of pipelines, roads, trucks, infrastructure needed to support active resource withdrawal just isn't going to jive with the ecological resources there. So to get this out up front, it is no secret that I am biased. I have a natural inclination to stick up for the critters and even the bugs in places I've never even been, but have that wilderness appeal. Anwar absolutely does have that appeal. But I am also aware that people need jobs. We consume a lot of natural resources, specifically oil and gas. And there have been a lot of people working to exercise the congressionally approved development of the 1002 area for a very long time. Taking that into consideration, my question is, why now? Whether you have an MBA or, you know, you got a D in microeconomics like I did, you know that old adage of buy low, sell high. Well, if we sell leases to the natural resources possibly hidden in the coastal plain, we would be selling low. Why are we looking to sell this area with a confirmed, cannot put a price tag on it value at rock bottom prices? It probably doesn't have much to do with what is going on with the pebble mine right now. As I would think, everyone knows by now, a mine, which would be located at the headwaters and the heart of one of our great natural resources, sockeye salmon, has been a political volleyball from administration to administration. In order to stick with this analogy, which falls in line with our office Parks and Rec Volleyball League, the ball, which is the approval of Pebble Mine, is currently in the air after, let's call it, a high set from influential conservatives such as Johnny Morris of Bass Pro Shops and his appearance on Tucker Carlson and tweets from Donald Trump Jr., This attention possibly led to a briefing with Trump Sr. and a statement from the Army Corps of Engineers just last week telling the Pebble Partnership that they need to get back to the drawing board and revise their mitigation plan. Important to note here that mitigation means replacing what you destroy, aiming for like a net zero-ish impact. Pebble Partnership has 90 days to revise their plan, and they seem confident that their next plan will be a winner and the project will soon be underway. The ball is high and tight to the net, folks. A spike from President Trump in the form of veto power by use of the Clean Water Act into the sand of Canada's Northern Dynasty minerals is what we need. To take a slight step back and paint a slightly different picture here, Part of our issue with Alaska is it is, you know, a long way away. We have several hundred businesses, over 50,000 signatures, and somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 jobs that, if the salmon resources managed properly, are indefinite. 
All of those interests want to stop this mine. You hear it all the time. This is the wrong mine in the wrong place. So for all of you folks familiar with Montana, something a little bit closer to Alaska, and I'll tell you just from looking out my window, there's a lot of folks recreating from out of state in Montana right now. Drive past Butte, America, home of the Berkeley Pit, which is another open pit headwaters mine. This one located in Silverbow County. That area and the mines within it employed a lot of people. Butte at one point was reportedly at over 100,000 people. Keep in mind, we only have about a million folks in the state of Montana. But that was a long time ago anyway. When I was growing up, Silverbow County, the entire county, not just Butte, was the only county in western Montana that continually lost population. There were no jobs. And the drainage from the mine flowed all the way down to the nearest dam on the Clark Fork River, about 107 miles to Missoula, and, you know, sometimes beyond. This created the largest Superfund site in the lower 48. Now, Butte gets an annual rainfall of 13 inches and an annual snowfall of 54 inches. The area, the census area, rather, with presumably at least a post office that I am going to butcher the name of, I'm going to say Kaliginek, Alaska, is located pretty darn close to the proposed mine site, and that area gets basically double the moisture from the sky. 25 inches of rain, 91 inches of snow annually. That stuff comes out of the sky into this proposed big bucket or open pit, and that water has to go somewhere. What Northern Dynasty Minerals has proposed is a system of pumps and pipes and holding ponds and settling ponds And listen, anytime you move water in those types of temperatures, something's bound to go wrong, right? Anyone who has had a pipe burst in the freeze thaws of northern latitudes can see where potential problems lie. So again, right now, the ball is high and tight to the net. There's a little bit of breathing room from the Army Corps engineers, but what we're looking for is a spike by the Trump administration. You can get lots more detail on the current situation by Meat Eater's own Sam Lundgren. You can find that at TheMeatEater.com, titled Pebble Mine Falls Short on Critical Permit. Is it dead? Moving on to the seldom visited, I think first time visited, obituary desk. Like conservation news isn't depressing enough, right? On this episode, we will mourn the loss of a 194-year-old matriarch an apple tree. The last remaining apple tree from the original Hudson Bay colony located in Vancouver, Washington, died this summer. Brought to what is now Washington by, and this is very unsubstantiated, a British officer, the tree, quote, immigrated to Fort Washington in 1826 and is survived by countless thousands of descendants. Not to speak ill of the dead, but you could call this tree a very successful parasite but most call it the start of the fruit industry in the Northwest. Moving on, and Phil, you'll have to add some appropriate music here. That famed Canadian Turk has passed from this plane courtesy of an urban coyote. That's right, Turk Diggler, the lone and lusty Tom Turkey of Calgary, Alberta, has met his loveless end. The words on his marker read, quote, at least it wasn't an outdoor cat. 
I am a big, bright, shining star. Moving on to the anthropology desk. One of the oldest debates in the anthropology world may be one step closer to being answered. When did humans harness fire? The ability to make fire wherever and whenever you want obviously has some benefits. People can heat structures, meaning they could expand their range into previously inhospitable climates. We could cook food. We could alter natural materials for other benefits. Think of projectile points. As we know, a better projectile can expand your culinary range as well. Well, deep in Wonderwork Cave, located in northern Cape Province, South Africa, what appear to be hearths, burned bone, and plant matter have been uncovered and dated to one million years ago. Remember I said deep in the cave? These items were so deep in the cave, it led scientists to believe that they weren't carried in or blown in by a brush fire. Scientists believe that fire had to have been mastered as long as 1.6 million years ago, as this would coincide with other substantiated changes, such as the shrinking of gut size and the enlargement of brain size. The shrinking of the gut indicates a refined diet, possibly that of meat, and the enlarged brain requires more fat and carbohydrates to nourish, which means I need a lot of meat. So how did this happen if humans hadn't had the ability to start a cooking fire? Well, we don't know. And likely will not know, for certain at least, for some time to come. We're talking about 1.6 million years ago, after all. But we do know humans. And we know that humans have obsessed over and fondled and started fire for a long, long time. Including today, right now. Just think about a couple of the common phrases around fire, right? Don't play with fire, you might get burned. That saying did not start after the written word, friends and neighbors. Fire! The outdoor TV! Well, that saying did start after the written word, but you get my drift, so stick with me. The one thing we do know in regards to humans' first fire, be it 1.6 or 1 million or 400,000 years ago, is this. The human ancestor that first started their first fire, human's first fire, did not get any credit for it. Because as anyone can recall, their first fire starting experience knows that when the first fire starter was approached and asked, did you start that fire? They absolutely responded with, no, uh-uh, wasn't me. I don't know how that got here. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're loving what you're hearing, please don't hog all this good information to yourself. Tell a friend or two. If you need to set me straight on something I messed up, or just let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods, please do so at A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. 
Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. 